You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic, to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Nick Bermel, Professor Emeritus in the English Department at University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Mass. Bermel is the author of numerous articles on 19th and 20th century literature and politics, and has edited the Norton Critical Edition of Frederick Douglass's My Bondage, My Freedom, as well as a collection of essays under the title The Political Companion to W.E.B. Du Bois with the University of Kentucky Press in 2018. He is the author of four books, by the Sweat of the Brow, Literature and Labor in Antebellum America with the University of Chicago in 1993, Tomorrow Never Knows, Rock and Psychedelics in the 1960s, also with the University of Chicago Press in 2000, The Time is Always Now, Black Thought and the Transformation of U.S. Democracy with Oxford University Press in 2013, and a new book, The Occasion for Our Conversation Today, The Powers of Dignity, The Black Political Philosophy of Frederick Douglass, out with Duke University Press in 2021. In The Powers of Dignity, Vermel centers on the notion of dignity and its cognates in Douglass's work, and by way of that focus, develops a broad, comprehensive picture of a political philosophy rooted in what Douglass calls the slave experience. In our discussion here, we explore themes of race, racism, republicanism, liberalism, and the complexities of imagining black liberation in the 19th century up through the 21st. Nick, welcome. It's really great to see you and have a chance to talk about your book. It's great to be here, John. I'm very, very grateful that you invited me to to join you here. As you know, being an author yourself, you send your book out into the world and, uh, you know, uh, if you get an (laughs) echo back, you, you feel good, but you don't really have many chances to actually talk about it with anybody. And uh, so, yeah, I'm very, very, very honored and very grateful that you've asked me to be here today. Well, I'm super happy. Uh, you know, you and I were uh, five college colleagues for years there in Amherst, you at UMass and me at Amherst College. Um, I've always really liked your presence and your thoughtfulness and your work. And so when this book came out, um, you're one of the one of those I put on pre-order. So I was really excited when it arrived and uh, read it. And I will say this about the book. I thought it was fantastic books. Really, the documentation, the writing, the thoughtfulness is is really superb. And I say this about some books, but not really all that many, which is I really learned a lot from the book, right? It wasn't just here's a take on Frederick Douglass. I'm not a Douglass specialist, but I have enough thoughts that, you know, Mm -hmm. I know there are books that are sort of a take and that's interesting, but I really learned a lot from this book. I I thought it's, it has a depth that uh, I really appreciate. And I, I hope we get a chance to sort of tap into that in this conversation. Sure. Well, you know, I'll just jump in to say, I learned a lot uh, reading it and, um, what prompted me to read it, uh, I mean, I, I learned a lot by writing it. And uh, what I learned uh, came mainly from reading virtually everything Douglas ever said or wrote that we can get our hands on. 
And in uh, my home field of American literary studies, you know, it was commonplace to, uh, to write about Douglas, um, having really read only a couple of his autobiographies and a handful mm. of speeches. Hmm. That seemed to pass muster. I think, it, honestly, it still does. Uh, but in the field of political theory, which I at that point had now started to migrate into, mm -hmm. um, the level of scholarship was very high. And uh, this guy, Nick Bukala, who wrote a book about Douglas's political thought, mm -hmm. um, really opened my eyes to the, the enormity of the archive and, and how much one really should read in order to write responsibly about Douglas's political thought. So, uh, you know, I tip my hat to that field of political theory and to uh, Peter Myers, another uh, theorist who wrote a good book about Douglas, but in particular to Nick Bukala. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. No, like I said, the documentation in the book is, is fantastic. And that's, it's one of these books that uh, any of us who are interested in, you know, black political theory, um, even, even, you know, literary history, you know, African-American uh, cultural history, uh, we'll all be scrambling to the footnotes um, and, and uh, as well as the thoughts in the pages. And that's, uh, that's an extra gift, I really think. And so, you know, I, I, that makes the book special. And, um, you know, so thank you for doing all that reading. That's not a small amount of reading. I'm not going to point because uh, it's not, uh, you know, this is audio recording, but, you know, I have the the collected Frederick Douglass and that takes up a chunk of a shelf. So, that's, um, but let me ask you just to get started, ask you about the origins of the book. You know, when we write a book, it's not, um, it's not something we kind of <laughs> casually do on the side. I mean, it really takes over our lives. It's, it becomes part of our being for the period of writing and research. Um, so something always motivates that to make us put those sorts of things aside in our lives that we would otherwise be doing to take on this kind of work. So I'm curious, is, to, is it like an invitation really for you to narrate your way into the project for us? Like, what were the, what were the, 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 the exigencies that drew you to the project? Philosophical, political, intellectual, uh, cultural, you know, you've spoken a little bit about, you know, what, what you could, what you wanted to do with the book in terms of literacy, right? You know, the things that you had read and, and cited, but I'm curious, just broadly, sort of what drew you to this project because taking on a book is an existential event. Well, you know, that's a, that's a question that could lead us into infinite regress if I were to answer it in any, any uh, <laughs> yes. thoroughgoing way. Um, <laughs> of course. And, but, uh, you know, I was not trained as an African-Americanist. Uh, I was trained in 19th century American literature with a historicist methodology that was conventional um, in the late 1970s and early 80s. But I wrote about Douglas in my first book. In fact, he's the only person uh, who got two chapters. Uh, but I was writing about the cultural contestation over the meaning of work. And so um, I was became very interested in the question of whether uh, slavery is work um, without peer or whether slavery is sort of the, 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 the negative of work, the other of work that gives work what meaning it has, if work has any meaning. And uh, Douglas was very rich on that topic. Um, 
and so that started my me down the Douglas path. And then uh, um, I wrote another book on rock and roll uh, and psychedelics in the 60s. And I got very interested in the whole question of whether music has meaning, um, which mm -hmm. is a sort of a musicological philosophy of music question. And I became very interested in really, you know, the deep roots of African-American music. So I went back to Douglas, you know, mainly because of the famous passage on slave songs. Yeah. Songs that the enslaved sang as they were um, going uh, through the woods to the Great House Farm. And, um, and then my next book really grew out of a political urgency. Um, and I would say that it was really the, the rise of, of the Republican right and the inability of um, the center left to mount an effective opposition to it, and, and in particular, an effective um, intellectual response. Uh, liberalism had become moribund. You know, it, uh, I thought there were still some good aspects of liberalism, but it didn't command loyalty anywhere really in uh, across the left-center political spectrum, and yet nothing um, had arisen or emerged to replace it. Um, mm -hmm. So I started, you know, just reading a lot about democracy and I wound up uh, discovering the field of political theory and a, a very rich discourse there about democracy. And oh, uh, then I started looking at my home field of literature and who, what writers have written interestingly about democracy and the mm -hmm. problems of democracy. And uh, I found that most the most interesting writers were all African-American, um, or most of them were. So I started reading more and more and more African-American writers um, to see what they had to say about mm -hmm. democracy and democratic citizenship. And I wound up putting together a book called The Time is Always Now that argued that um, in African-American <clears throat> reflection on democracy, the center left today can find you know, an alternative set of ideas with which to mm -hmm. effectively uh, speak back to the right on such issues as this relation of belief uh, or church, what we used to call church and state, but we'll call, you know, faith commitments and, and pluralism, let's say, or <clears throat> speak back to them on the issue of um, having a, a kind of a worldwide perspective, a sense of world citizenship, but at the same time, the sense of patriotism. So mm -hmm. these are some of the issues that the left couldn't handle. You know, they wanted to throw patriotism out the window and throw faith commitments out the window. And that just mm -hmm. wasn't cutting it anymore. Mm -hmm. So African-American thinkers give us a way to actually bring these things together, to, to, to have very strong faith commitments, but still have a fundamentally pluralist political philosophy. Mm -hmm. So um, from there, you know, um, uh, my reading uh, of Douglas deepened, and I looked down these vistas of his life and work and thought, and said, "I wanted, I want to go to the end of these vistas. Uh, mm -hmm. There's so much there." And I've already mentioned that there were two very good books at that time about Frederick Douglass's political thought, and uh, by Peter Myers and Nick Bucola, and I read them both and learned a lot uh, from them, and. And then I read others, um, and I found that in that field of political theory, the sort of the the, the discourse game, so to speak, I, I don't mean game in any pejorative sense, it's just mm -hmm. this is what people do, sure. is to um, 
take a political thinker, could be Hannah Arendt, or it could be, uh, you know, it could be James Baldwin, or it could be Frederick Douglass, and they 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 they, they, they want to write about that person within the coordinates of political philosophy that already exists. So they wind yeah. up saying, well, basically he or she is a Hobbesian with a yeah. you know with some Rousseau thrown in, or so that's and. And so these two books really argued that Douglas was a natural right liberal, and there are other philosophers who argued that Douglas was really more in the uh, a Republican, uh, in the political theory sense. Uh, uh, philosopher Robert Gooding Williams, invoking Philip Pettit, thinks of Douglas as primarily um, a, a Republican thinker who's uh, against domination. Mm-hmm. But uh-huh. I was reading him and thinking, you know, actually, this net we have already in place doesn't capture the Douglas that I'm reading. And in particular, it doesn't address his one explicit statement in which he identifies himself as a political philosopher when he says, uh, from this little bit of experience, slave experience, that's characteristic Douglas irony and understatement, by the way, mm-hmm. from this little bit of experience, slave experience, I've elaborated quite a lengthy chapter of political philosophy applicable to the American people. So, you know, that raises the question, and why would Douglas have felt that his political philosophy had its origins in this uh, realm that it was so um, inimical to philosophical reflection, mm-hmm. um, this realm of radical unfreedom of the, that characterizes enslavement. So that was my quest to try to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's my long answer to your short question. No, I'm glad I asked the question. I mean, I think yeah. the origins of books are always really interesting. You know, sometimes I have a deeply personal and sometimes I have a perplexity about scholarship, but usually they have this, you know, a cultural and political urgency that you're describing that then mm-hmm. um, I, li- I like that when it, and it returns us to, to texts that change us, mm-hmm. that, that instruct us. And I also, you know, what you were saying about the way we, that there's such a deep habit in, in political philosophy and a lot of philosophy, which is my PhD field, um, of reading figures and saying, how do they map on, as you said, to the sort of graph or matrix that, that we already have existing. And, and I really love this about the book. I mean, I, I, it's resistance to that is I think really, really clear, but not in that, like it's your cause, right? It's just, you offer a different kind of reading, um, which hopefully that's part of the historicist, uh, you know, training that you mentioned that you had going back to reading as a as a as a, a literature professor to do political theory i think is actually a really valuable thing that's i heard a lot of that in what you were saying mm-hmm. yeah let me ask you about uh both the title and the subtitle um you know i love the title of the book the powers of dignity and i want to ask you you've you said just a little bit uh, sort of alluding to it um, the significance of this notion of dignity. You know, why this critical term dignity? And what do you think that that uh, adds to our political thinking and theorizing? You know, you know, it's a critical concept in the book, right? And you develop it, and, and I hope it really takes off as a critical concept in, in our overlapping fields. I think it's really important. And critical concepts help us see things that we wouldn't otherwise see, right? It sort of re 
reframes our sense of the grain of of political thinking, of political values, and so forth. So I'm interested in that, um, hearing you talk about this title, The Powers of Dignity, um, but also the subtitle, The Black Political Philosophy of Frederick Douglass, really caught my eye. You know, this uh, word philosophy, rather than his, his, his activism, right, or his, as his place <clears throat> as an historical actor, which I think is how if you were to ask about Frederick Douglass and, and politics, it's like, well, he was incredibly important abolitionist. Absolutely true. But you pick up, as you said in the, the quotation, right, this, this phrase, political philosophy. So I'm curious really about those two terms, dignity and philosophy, and how, you know, how they function in the, the book, part of the title and subtitle, because I think they really mark in their own way what is so unique and, and important about the book. Sure. Um, well, to take the word philosophy first, um, I've already uh, more or less cited the quotation in which he identifies as having written a political philosophy. Uh, the, the word occurs other places in his writing, and most famously, very um, uh, early in his career, um, or so he tells us in My Bondage and My Freedom, uh, which he published in 1855, but he's looking back at his early career with the Garrisonian abolitionists, and he has become a lecturer for the um, American Abolitionist Society, Anti-Slavery Society. And uh, um, one of his colleagues, a poor fellow who's now lives on forever because of this one remark of his, John Collins said, you know, he says, you know, uh, leave the philosophy to us, you know, just uh, bear witness to slavery, but quote unquote, you know, leave the philosophy to us. Hmm. And so clearly um, uh, Douglas's uh, colleagues were thinking he was already, you know, starting to approach um, being an abolitionist activist with perhaps, you know, too much of a philosophical set of interests. And, um, uh, they just wanted to give him to give vivid, graphic, and moving testimony about the horrors of slavery. So um, I think every scholar of Douglas would agree that one reason he left the Garrisonian abolitionists and, and founded the North Star was that he really wanted a more room to sort of spread his wings as a philosopher. Hmm. And yet, um, not as an armchair philosopher, but as someone, a philosopher, or someone who did kind of philosophical thinking um, uh, because he felt it was an indispensable dimension of his political activism. I don't think he yeah. made a distinction between his way of doing philosophy and his activism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the black, um, that was a very late addition to the uh, subtitle. I don't know if you asked me to talk about that, but I no, I'm totally, it, yeah, please um, do. You know, the title for a long time was The Political Philosophy of Frederick Douglass. You know, well, um, kind of ho-hum for one thing. But then I realized, you know, no, there are other books that are about that. And I'm, I'm looking specifically at the way his thinking was shaped by, you know, his experience of enslavement and then subsequently by his experience of anti-Black racism. So there's a lot of... Um, uh, there's, well, there's a lot of, of his philosophy or there are aspects or dimensions of his philosophy that I don't touch 
partly because they've been done pretty well by others. Mm -hmm. I'm just taking this part of the bandwidth. I'm, uh, the part that he says emerged from his experience of enslavement, and I would say, and also from his experience of anti-Black racism mm -hmm. throughout the mm -hmm. rest of his life. Um, and, uh, you know, this was, um, uh, I was writing the, the finishing up the book, you know, during for the Ferguson and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I, I suddenly just became clear to me that uh, I've got, I, I was hesitant as a white scholar, honestly, to, to lay claim to being able to name what was distinctively black about his political philosophy. And even though the content of the book was doing that, I was very reluctant to have it be out there in the title. Mm -hmm. But I decided, no, I'm going to name this book uh, as what it is. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. So as far as dignity goes, um, well, we'll probably be talking about that a bit more today. Um, um, dignity is a word that Douglas uses um, fairly often, but it's it's not one of the words he, he, he uses many, many times. He has sort of a constellation of words that, um, that can mean dignity or some aspect of dignity. And so one is humanity, um, one is manhood, um, um, another is uh, respect or self-respect. Um, um, and uh, the word dignity, um, it really emerges philosophically in his work as that word that's that's doing the work that all those other words have been doing for him. When he starts writing about um, women's suffrage after the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's clear at that point that the word manhood is not going to work. Um, when you're you're yeah. you're asserting the, the 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 equal political rights of women, and um, so this word, what he calls natural dignity or just dignity, um, is the one he then turns to, and it's my belief that um, that these other words like manhood, um, uh, like humanity, uh, uh, human being. Um, are, are all doing that work from so his sense of dignity is specifically human dignity and uh it rests on uh a conception of what it is to be human mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and, it, and it answers the question or his philosophy tries to answer the question uh on what basis do would do we think and believe that human beings as a species merit political rights it's mm -hmm. it's not it that is not self-evident yeah right that's and and so the you know the founders could claim it was self-evident uh, they were trying to kind of pry it loose a little bit from a, a kind of a more theological understanding even though mm -hmm. we are endowed mm -hmm. by by our creator with these rights they um they just wanted to name these rights as being somehow self-evident without explaining why why our creator would have endowed us with these rights or what 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 is these creatures that he created such that they are endowed with rights and so uh, douglas looked at uh, the political philosophy circulating in his time which um you know in a declaration of independence was 
good shorthand version of that, you know, endowed, yeah, yeah. endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, principally in others as well. And he kind of wondered, well, well, but but blacks aren't being included in this. So, um, so this is resting on some some not named conception of the human. Yeah. And uh, so, for me to be able to claim that 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 blacks also have these rights, I have to um, elaborate a more complete conception of what it is to be human and why mm-hmm. human beings merit political rights what is it that gives human beings their worth or their dignity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's where the word dignity comes in and um very very closely associated with um a conception of human worth or worthiness we would say we wouldn't have the reason we have rights is to protect our human worthiness Mm -hmm. i mean there's something you know that struck me um when yeah. I read the book and was was thinking about this notion of dignity, and especially as you're talking now, about the centrality of humiliation in anti-black racism, that it's it's you know I think one of the one of the signature features of anti-black racism, you know, enacted by white people is to humiliate, right? Which is to take somebody's dignity, you know, and that can have many kinds of forms. You know, I think like the pleasure that white people take in, in, you know, historically in say minstrel shows, or, you know, I think the real delight that a lot of white people take in police brutality videos that also mobilize another element of the, you know, part of the population. Um, But also even in those passive ways, you know, not to be overly contemporary, but I think about what is this Republican, white Republican enthusiasm about Herschel Walker in Georgia? You know, I think part of it is the pleasure of his humiliating himself over and over Mm -hmm. and like how to articulate the stakes of that. I really struggle with like, what is this pleasure of humiliation? And I I will say that like my habit has been for years to think about that in a sort of armchair kind of, you know, coffee shop psychoanalytic framework of like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's a sort of erotic thing of, you know, what, you know, go into that direction. But that felt overly speculative. When I read this book, and especially now sort of hearing you talk about dignity in, in, its, in its relationship to the question of rights, it does seem like, you know, that humiliation is a way of blocking rights, right? It becomes... It, 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 blocks, it blocks the assertion of rights, Yeah, right? It, blocks, it, it, block, it certainly blocks the recognition of rights. But if, if you want to, if you want to, you know, if you were good, trying to design a way in a in a um, uh, purportedly non-authoritarian state, to to keep a certain body of people from claiming rights, you know, you can't just throw them all in jail or export them or you know all those yeah. those efforts were also made. Obviously, um, what do you do? Well, you, what you want to do is try to persuade them that they lack the they 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 lack the the the, the worth that that um that rights are there to protect and if they don't feel that the injury to their worth that sense of injury they won't feel the impulse to stop the injury Hmm. right by claiming their rights so it's a very effective way of keeping um resistance uh from emerging if you can 
if you can persuade people that they are the, the you know that they're nobodies in effect mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. another word that we can do this. i don't know if you know that distinction between somebodiness and nobodiness but yeah. if you if you if you feel like you're nobody if you have very low self-esteem you're not likely to assert your yourself in the public sphere right yeah. so um so that's that was douglas's account of it i think I think humiliation, you know, I think there's some truth to what you were saying definitely about um, the the kind of sadism and eroticism of humiliation. Um, Douglas has a uh, an account of that also um, that's very interesting. He hmm. felt that uh, when if when one person uh, attacks the dignity of another person, um, and denies their humanness. Mm -hmm. um, they are um, they are at the very same time undermining their own humanness, yeah. because in Douglas's view, to be human is to recognize yourself and others as co-humans at the same time. You you can't recognize yourself as a human without seeing yourself as a human being. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and you, and you, you, and, you know, Douglas and other abolitionists said this over and over again, you know, they don't, he said, you know, they're not making laws to, you know, to keep dogs from, from killing people in the, in the South, they're, but they are making laws to keep black people from doing this or that and the other thing that it's all predicated on our recognition that we are human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so there's this highly, you know, uh, we would say uh, relational, intersubjective. You could you could think of Levinas and many other philosophers here, which um, our sense of who we are and are having worth is is very dependent both on how other people see us, but also on how we behave toward others. Mm -hmm. So when the dominant classes or when uh, the slaveholders sought to deprive their enslaved populations from asserting their rights by undermining their dignity by and they did this by destroying families depriving them of all access to education working them long hours you know all of those things mm -hmm. had the effect of trying to deprive them of those of those basic conditions in which we have a sense of our own self-worth yeah right and um so when they did this, they, 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 you know, as Doug, Douglas would say, the slaveholder is at war with himself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, 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 the slaveholder knows that they feel bad about this. Yeah. So what do they do with this agitation that they have inside? And Douglas has these wonderful portraits of slave masters having this agitation. Well, they look around for someone to blame. Mm -hmm. And who, who, who do they blame? They blame the, they blame the, the black subject, right? And so you're the one to blame for me feeling this way. And this is where you get into the uh, excessiveness of punishment. Yeah. The, the 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 lash that goes on whipping much longer than it needs to, because it's what it's 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 trying to eradicate this thing that doesn't actually lie in the black body. So it's the wrong place. You know, it's. And yet in doing that, it's just like deepening the sense of uh, loss of one's own self-respect yeah. that then further excites one's need to punish. And mm -hmm. it becomes this vicious circle. 
So I do think, do I think that white American culture today is caught up in some of the same vicious cycle? I definitely do. I mean, when you, you know, the, the <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's something very unnerving about the way you put that about, you know, how I feel about myself means I have to punish you as if you were the source of this. Right. Um, I mean, the explanatory power of that is, is, is massive. And I think just plainly accurate. I mean, I think in some ways people tell on themselves that just, you know, you know, don't make me feel guilty. And it's yeah. not just don't make me feel guilty as like a, can you not make me feel guilty? It's like, that's the pretense to a form of violence, right? Exclusion of, of, you know, African-American history from a curriculum. You know, I won't vote for this candidate. I don't want to be in the room with these, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think that really captures, uh, captures a lot of those affects. And that's what I liked about the, your articulation of dignity. And I'm really interested in that also in relation to the question of philosophy, because dignity is simultaneously, as you, as you pointed out, right, connected to rights as a sort of systematic or conceptual link, but it's also deeply affective, right? That we, we feel right. dignity. I feel like like my dignity is being recognized. I feel dignified when I do certain things. I feel like it's taken away from me when I do certain things or certain things are done to me. So that, that affective dimension, I think adds a, um, a dimension to political philosophy that is not just sort of, here's the affective life of politics. And then there's the abstract questions of rights, but these become not necessarily even bridges, but just part of this organism you know, that is our, our, our democratic life or our failure to, to have a democratic life. And I want to pick up on, I mean, in some ways, then we will have spent, you know, a good half hour on one sentence that you quoted at the beginning, um, you know, what, uh, the, what came, bef- uh, came as part of this, you know, my political philosophy uh, from Douglas, which is this question of slave experience. I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about that, you know, how you, how you understand Douglas to understand that and what it does in terms of our interpretive frames, right? How we, how we interpret political phenomena, right? And also the kinds of political values that it gives rise to that wouldn't be visible or as visceral or as central without starting from that notion of the, of slave experience. And I ask this because, I mean, obviously it's, it's in some ways the sentence that drives the book and so it's a it's a an experience that animates all of Douglas's work and animates your work on Douglas, but it also speaks historically to something that I think we still talk about when we talk about thinking politics from below, right? Thinking from the perspective of the oppressed or the experience of the oppressed. But this is a really intense phrase for me, the slave experience, and you sort of alluded to it yourself, which is you know, the slave experience is so identified with something like abjection that then to think about it as an interpretive frame and as a generator of certain kinds of political values and of a political philosophy, I think does change how we hear that phrase slave experience. So I just wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about that, how it changes how we interpret political problems, uh, but also uh, how it articulates uh, political values in Douglas's work. Well, you know, um, and so I, I will recognize that in some ways I'm asking you to explain the entire book. <laughs> so. Well, there it, it um, there's a, in my mind, there's 
there's a there there are a lot of very interesting questions that we can ask and and uh, and 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 discuss and and I'm happy and we will be doing that. I, I like doing this. So I, I, there's no criticism or self criticism applied here. Um, that that Douglas would not have been interested in. Okay, there's a way. There's um, you know, um, Douglas. You could so Douglas was a profound thinker, but you know he always thought out of you know what, what we're now uh, uh, we could use David Scott's uh, term of problem space as, as a shorthand for this. Mm -hmm. So you know for Douglas, you know there was no Archimedean distanced place from which to look at and see the world, you know, as, as it, as it, it really is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yet it, it, the, the habit of thinking about life and politics in the world from some sense of distance from it, even when we, we, uh, we disavow over and over again, that the, the existence of such a distance. And I think you and I would both agree, you know, we've all people who've read Foucault and micropolitics and, Micropower and all of this, we 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 know we are completely interpolated and implicated and everything like that. We get that, and yet, when we begin our project of thinking, there is a sense in which we we set ourselves up in a space apart. It's just such a deep habit of thought, yeah. and um, so. Just to give you one short example, um, if one were to, the philosophers have written, and there's an, uh, uh, an interesting, pretty lively uh, uh, conversation in philosophy uh, about what dignity is. So we could talk a lot about, so what is dignity? And, you know, one of the uh, paradoxes of dignity that some philosophers can't handle is that it is both innate and indestructible. So the whole idea of human dignity as we find it in the UN Declaration of Human Rights is that, you know, it, to be human is to have this dignity and, and to have this worth, qua humanness. Uh, so all, all humans have this. But at the same time, we're saying, well, wait a minute, hum, it, dignity is socially contingent. You know, it's something that that we can lose or um if mm -hmm. if we're not getting affirmation of or having dignity from others and if we're not seen by them as co-partners in this collaborative production of mutual de uh, dignity mm -hmm. so which is it you know which which is it okay so for douglas this is a non-question because there's no place that he ever stood where you would ask that question his starting point is that it's both of these things at the same time yeah okay and so you have to think nature and culture simultaneously all the time that because mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. you know that, um and and he could say yes i we could tease that apart as a heuristic you know but i'm not interested in doing that because where i stand these things are always fused this is my like that so I'm, I'm saying this because to me, in some way, the most radical thing about Douglas is the way he challenges me as a thinker to disvest myself of some very deep habits 
that that should have been eradicated by way of my intellectual journey to date through philosophy and theory of the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, um, starting with pragmatism and what's like going through Foucault for shorthand, uh, but didn't do that. The habits are real deep. So, so, and they, they surface again and again, and I had to really fight them when I was deciding what to try to say and what not to try to say in that book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so, so now this was, this is a bit of a digression, but I do want to kind of go back to, Therefore, like okay, the, 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 um, for for Douglas, the um, you know the experience of enslavement and of anti-black racism was the case. Okay, so this was the problem space we could call it out of which he was mm-hmm. thinking, and you know it's nothing new to us that 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 it's, this is a, this is a a convention of the study of African American literature. Uh, you know, du, du Bois's idea of you know second sight to some degree is the locus classicus of this idea that of those at the margin see things about the social construction of reality mm-hmm. that those who are in charge of the whole system are unable to see yeah. so and partly that's all i am saying you know uh, that's mm-hmm. all douglas was saying you know um but um he went beyond that often to um to suggest um, that there were actually resources for reflection in the, in the experience of uh, enslavement that um, you had what you might say more a, a substantive quality than just this abstract, you see things from the margin that people in the middle don't. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he, um, you know, he takes great risk in naming those because in doing so, this is in his autobiographies, um, he he risked um, lending a credence to the the pro-slavery argument that that the enslaved were happy, contented, they weren't being mistreated, sure, and so on and so forth. Um, so anytime he had anything we'll call positive to say about his experience of enslavement, or any way he might have seen it as a resource for. Um, for human building, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the building of a certain kind of human um, with a certain valuable perspective on things, this is a big risk. And yet he does take those risks. Mm-hmm. So, but I think he would not have universalized from them. He would have seen them as very particular unto himself. I and see. I don't think, I don't think he would have, he, he never suggests that, that any enslaved, that this is generally the case or he, he, mm-hmm. he, he, uh, his experience, he, he's writing very much from a first person perspective when he when he he talks about these things in his books. Um, um, so I'll just give try give you one example. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so probably the most famous moment in Douglas's writing, uh, autobiographical writing, is just the wrestling with Covey. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay, that's that's merits being very very well known, but there is a moment that occurs much earlier uh, in his life, and he 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 narrates for the first time in my bondage and my freedom. It doesn't appear in the narrative, and it, um, this is soon after he's um, actually left his grandmother's house, and he's now really in the scene of his enslavement, is discovering like what it means to be a, an enslaved person. 
and he's under the thumb of the cook who doles out all the food to all the enslaved persons on the plantation. And she's taken a disliking to him and treats him very unkindly. And one day she says, you know, she's, she means to starve the life out of him, she says. And she says he has to go the whole day without food. So he's sitting there feeling really sorry for himself. Um, and suddenly the door opens to the kitchen and in comes his mother, whom he almost never sees. This is a unbelievably good fortune. And she looks at a glance and sees her son looking not well, miserable. And, uh, he, and, and asked him what the matter is. And she says, well, Aunt Katie said she meant to starve the life out of me. And, he, and then he, she turns to Aunt Katie and kind of reads her the riot act. Um, and, he, and Douglas says his mother was, you know, a woman of, of, of manner, not just matter or something like that. She was an imposing, a woman carried herself with dignity hmm. herself. And, and the Douglas ends the story by saying, you know, th that night I learned that I was somebody's child. Interesting. Wow. Okay, I learned that I was somebody's child. So, uh, of course, the whole breakup of the slavery of the family in the slavery system was was designed to prevent children from from feeling that they were somebody. They were all going to be like nobodies because there was no one who really specially cared for them, and whose every glance and gesture and touch affirmed the value of this child in the world. Mm -hmm. Douglas got that from his grandmother, but in this moment when his mother comes in, um, he he gets this incredibly powerful affirmation of it. And um, so, you know, I think I think in that moment, you might say, um, you know, we've all had experiences. It's an it's um it's a, it's a it's an example of the way extremity of experience can produce extremity of insight. So it's it mm -hmm. goes beyond it goes beyond margin center. Um, it goes really, uh, yeah. It 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 it's it's it it starts to get at something else. Um, and there are there there are other moments like that. Um, yeah. So so. Douglas um, always, he, I think I, and you, you probably remember how in the book I say he's very committed to standpoint epistemology. And, yeah. uh, um, and, and I think that's, again, because he feel, felt that as an enslaved person, he quickly grasped the, 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 the reality of standpoint. Everybody is seeing things differently. You know, and yeah. certainly not the way I see it. <laughs> like I belong here. And so, um, you know, we can come along 30 years later or, you know, any number of you will say, okay, so I get standpoint, I'm going to, I embrace standpoint epistemology. But for Douglas, the, um, the discovery of, of standpoint epistemology, which he found extremely enabling and extremely helpful, um, was a product of his experience of enslavement. And I don't think he was confident that he would have acquired it if he hadn't been enslaved. Because he looked around at all the white people he knew, and they certainly didn't get it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let me ask you then, just picking up with this, this you know, because it's interesting to come from this or to sort of close this circle about you know what 
what is the significance and sort of shape of this notion of slave experience and infusing that with epistemology, right? Standpoint epistemology in this case. Yeah. Um, because another thing that that I found interesting about the book and, and I had my own speculations, but of course, part of us getting a chance to talk because I get to hear what you thought. Um, you know, you, you know, I think like every reader, the first two things I read, the epigraphs and the acknowledgements. Um, it's, um, I don't know if that's like our gossip pages in academia or what, but um, but you have a quotation uh, from Orlando Patterson from his, his uh, Slavery and Social Death book. And it made me wonder, you know, and not because an epigraph promises any sort of critical encounter, but I wondered about the relationship between slavery as social death. And this notion of slave experience as having an epistemology of such deep and 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 encompassing uh, political resonance. So I'm interested just to hear you talk a little bit also about that aspect. You know, how in some ways is this book and Frederick Douglass's work, right, and this book documenting uh, Douglass's work, revisiting this question of slavery and social death and saying something very different about the relationship between. Um, slavery, epistemology, and being socially dead, because the socially dead don't really have an epistemology, right? They are the objects of knowledge. They aren't the subjects of knowledge. Right. They're always the predicate. Well, I'm glad you, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad you're asking me an Orlando Patterson question, because, <clears throat> you know, this is sort of one of my pet peeves uh, a little bit. And, and not just Orlando Patterson, but uh, and perhaps less Orlando Patterson than the way he has been taken up by by many of the people I work with and, and including my students who are exposed to his work often at secondhand without actually reading him the, that that phrase social death has taken on a life of its own the afro-pessimists have absolutely infused and, it with an absolutist right yeah. so uh, there are a couple things worth bearing in mind here one is that when Orlando Patterson's book appeared a very distinguished African-Americanist completely repudiated the argument. John Hope Franklin and, and John Blassingame in particular, you go back and read their reviews. Hmm. I mean, the slave community had just come out and it was having just the opposite, you know, so you, if you have a slave community, these people are not socially dead. So there was a, there was a kind of um, ignorance of, of history in that book that was uh, very, very annoying to people like Franklin and uh, and others. So secondly, Patterson himself pulls his punches in that book. If you go back and read it, it you know, there are times when he pulls back and says, well, of course they never did it. it the slavery system never did it succeed mm -hmm. in its project of, uh, uh, if you know, kind of fashioning the self, the social death of the enslaved. They, it, no matter, it, it, you know. So, nonetheless, those are pullback moments, and um, the, the the kind of the rhetorical thrust of the book is toward uh, you know this uh, this argument of uh, people can be forgiven for thinking of that as being the main takeaway. But if you if you read the book, he he definitely has a more nuanced yeah. yeah. thing. So, um, so then we get to Douglas, and Douglas, um, although they're early, early in his career as an abolitionist, it's, and it's kind of interesting to track this. He he does once or twice say that you know the slave the, the slave master you know 
turns the slave into a brute, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to a, uh, the, the human is, is, is turned into the animal. But very, very quickly, um, he, 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 he starts saying the very opposite. He said, no matter how hard the slave master tries to turn the enslaved into a brute, he cannot succeed because, quote unquote, the instinct of manhood always is inextinguishable. It can't be, you know, like, like that. So, I see. so, so, um, that's where the word manhood is serving this, you know, humanness or, you know, the sense of the worth of my humanness mm-hmm. is there with the experience of the humanness. And, uh, so, um, so yeah, that's what I would, I'm not sure if I've answered your question yet because I seized on the Orlando Patterson aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. If I go around thinking about this and nothing drives me more crazy than when I'm reading something that says, if, as Orlando Patterson argues, you know, well, first of all, I hate that if, as, you know, construction kind of like, let's come on, tell me where you stand on this. <laughs> you know, yeah. Okay. This was like, mm. but, but he was a sociologist, not a historian. And often mm-hmm. his work is called in to, to uh, as a historical authority on the, on the subject, which it definitely was not and never claimed to be. It was much more work of sociological philosophy. So there you go. I'm now getting off my high horse and my hobby horse and, <laughs> and we'll return to the whatever the, uh, the other part of your question was. Well, I, I you know, you answered it actually right. uh, perfectly, which, you know, I mean, I, the fact is that slavery and social death book is a difficult read. It's very long, yeah. you know, um, uh, and it is complicated. I mean, it's, yeah. the scope is, is unbelievable. I, I just, you know, people don't write books with that kind of scope very often. Um, but I think you're right to pick up on those hesitations. And it's interesting to think about Douglas's work as the expansion of those hesitation moments. Right. Um, but it does for me, you know, that your book and, and, you know, causing me, as I said, I've really learned a lot from the book. And one of the things I learned is rethinking Douglas, even just in those moments, the, the moment that all of us who teach sort of at the introductory level always teach the fight with Covey, right? And I do think that my own teaching on that is rooted in this notion of slavery as social death. And that that that's his moment of sort of leap out of death, right? I, it's dialectical. I think that's part of Angela Davis's casting of it. I mean, she's not citing Patterson, of course, because she wrote before the lecture on liberation. But I think that moment where you you recover Douglas's own complexity, which is just there on the page, but you really make sure it stays in the center, the complexity of his own articulation of being enslaved. And it's just complex, yeah. right? As you said, it's not doesn't mean it's good or has a redemptive, and but it's just that this is a human being undergoing this under unthinkably extreme conditions. But nevertheless, this is not a, a site of total death, right? It's a site of of suppression, right? Of dignity that then is asserted. So you know, I next semester, you know, for what it's worth, uh, be teaching you know the narrative and. This book and this exactly the kind of things you were just talking about will really change the way I teach that because I think that social death seeps into our characterizations of these moments as total abjection, which, you know, I think that part of the powers of dignity, 
right? The, the title of the book, part of the powers of dignity in, in Douglas's work is precisely to make sure that we don't forget that enslaved people were human, right? It's as silly as that sounds. Right. I think I, I, it, I found myself reading your book, thinking about the, my own ways that I did not do that, right? And I think social death has a, as a, as an organizing principle around understanding slavery is really, um, you know, causes us to read Douglas and not see that, that sense of humanity. Well, you know, you mentioned you're going to be teaching the narrative, right? And I'll just say, you know, if the narrative were 450 pages long and my bondage and my freedom were 250 pages long and everyone was teaching, uh, my bondage and my freedom instead, we would have a much more accurate view of Douglas. I mean, we, we, you and I would, you know, it's, it's all because of the narrative and it's being short and teachable. <laughs> so and, true. It was, and it was the, I'm serious. You know, I'm laughing uh, because it's so true. It's absolutely. And it was also the first book, you know, when, when the, the kind of the rediscovery of African-American literature began. And it was the, one of the very first books that was widely available and written about and it set a stamp on what Douglas was in scholarship that, you know, it, so, so one is that, um, is, is this kind of, um, version of heroic masculinity. Mm-hmm. This is completely false in my bond, you know, even, even really good scholars, like, I mean, I, I, I'm going to retract what I'm going to say. Um, I'm a little bit overstating about being completely false. Nothing is completely true or completely false. There is some truth to that in my bondage, in, in the narrative. But um, sometimes when people who write about my bondage and my freedom acknowledge that, well, you know, now we see strong women in here. Um, it's almost as if they believe that Douglas kind of flew forward in time saw the critique of him that's going to be developed in the 1970s, rushed back into the 19th century, wrote My Bondage and My Freedom, and put in these female characters so that a more complex view of him would be available to us. No, he, okay, when he was, the minute he had a longer tapestry or a bigger frame on which to write and and depict his experience of enslavement than he had while he was working with the Garrisonians, and mm-hmm. really had to produce a kind of a propaganda tract. Um, the minute he had that opportunity, he took it and he gave this much more complex and nuanced sense of what his experience of enslavement was. And it is one in which the women, black women in particular, but also white women figure very, very importantly, um, just as importantly as, as men. And uh, so, it's really a shame, in my view, that these historical accidents of the narrative being discovered first, and secondly, it being so short and so teachable, perpetuate this series of ideas or this cluster of ideas about Douglas that are only partially true. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I always hate that that how true that is about shorter works, but it really is true. I mean, I think even that, that, not to get us off track, but I even think that about Du Bois and the way the first two chapters of Souls becomes du- most of Du Bois. Oh, Whereas absolutely. Whereas the rest of Souls oh, I, I, is actually, you know, very, very different book. I mean, every chapter is very different, but of course he's somebody who 
you know, takes up as much uh, more space on the shelf than just about anybody in, in the complexity of his work. But um, yeah, it's, you know, the relationship between scholarship and time management is yeah. probably a, 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 like a, a meta reflection on our, on our profession <laughs> that needs to be written, but would probably be very painful to mm-hmm. read mm-hmm. and think about. Yeah. So I want to pick up on, you spoke to this a little bit when you were introducing your, your motivation for the book or so what drew you to the project. Um, and that's, I want to ask you a little bit about Douglas and, and liberal democracy or liberal uh, conceptions of the Republic. Because as, as you said, and, and you, you talk about in the book that there's something about this liberal conception of the Republic that can't emancipate. African-Americans, that there's something else, there's something that's go, whether it's beyond that, before that, underneath that, I don't know how to quite spatialize that. Um, maybe it doesn't matter. But I wanted you to talk a little bit about that notion of the liberal republic and what are the limits that Douglas sees and what is, how would you characterize Douglas's sort of step outside or beyond that liberal conception of the republic? Because as you said, uh, and as the, I was really moved by this and, and really troubled how much those liberal notions just don't seem to have a counter to the worst things that happen in our political society. You know, and then that way, you know, I think that Douglas's push outside liberal conceptions of the Republic and, and retrieval of something else that's related but different is actually quite instructive for us going, you know, in our moment, right, where we are beset by these same, you know, you know, I don't even know what to call them, but the sort of infusion of the psychological and the political, right? That, that we see this repetition of, of, you know, humiliation, dignity, and the struggle between those things. But that broader political theory question of the liberal republic and what the limits are for Douglas and where Douglas takes us beyond that. I just wanted to ask you sort of an open question to talk to that issue. So, um, you know, my thinking on this has been uh, very strongly influenced by Michael Sandel's book, Democracy's Discontents. And and, uh, some historians disagree with him, but I've I've never um, read a a thoroughgoing uh, uh, kind of overturning of his basic argument. His basic argument is that... uh, uh, the, the United States at the founding, the, the ideas are basically Republican ideas. Okay, the, the, we won't, don't want to use the word liberal in association with them at all. Um, mm-hmm. so we want to kind of actually distinguish Republicanism from and a republic from liberalism and a democracy. Uh-huh. So, so Republican, uh, one of the key differences is, is that Republicans uh in in you know republican political philosophy uh, roman republican polit- political philosophy believe that um it's perfectly it's perfectly right and fair for there to be certain qualifications for citizenship all citizens are equal but they're they have to be qualified for citizenship mm-hmm. so so um because because uh, being so, a self-governing republic is just not easy so, for example, uh, citizens need to have a certain am- amount of disinterest. They, they can't be engaging in all, all political debates simply by arguing for like what's, what they want to have happen that will enrich mm-hmm. or better their lives. 
So um, they, they have to be able to, to delay uh, uh, grat gratification in the near term for the long-term prosperity of the Republic. Uh, so, so they need to have um, basic material wealth in order to be, have some degree of disinterest. They, they need to have some degree of education in order to be able to take the long view of things. And, and there are other certain kinds of characterological um, qualities that are required uh, citizens to, in order for them to be able to successfully maintain this very fragile thing. And, and, and people were very aware of like the republics are the exception in history. Um, so if you're going to have one, you know, the citizens have to really um, come up to the level of required in order to make this thing work. Mm -hmm. So, but the, this, of course, is a problem because it then becomes quite exclusive. You know, people who who are who don't have the sufficient wealth to be disinterested or cannot become citizens. People who are are not sufficiently educated uh, cannot. And uh, there are other characterological um, requirements of citizenship that likewise are often associated with certain material bases. Um, mm -hmm. They have uh, like it's very masculinist also because. There's a certain uh, willingness to lay down one's life in war for the for the republic and and so on and so forth. But one of the values of the republic, uh, so and, and the two two things follow. One is that um, the citizens of the republic have to all agree to this, and they have to bring up their citizens. You know, so you, this is where you get the whole idea of republican motherhood in the in the U.S. in the early right or in the early mm -hmm. republic. Mm -hmm. Have to, they all have to be brought up to be. So that gives a certain kind of ethos. There's an ethos as a sense of community. There's a sense of shared value. There's a sense of reciprocity. There's a sense of all of those things, of a collaborative. We're all in a collaborative undertaking together. Then liberalism starts to emerge. And here you might say that the defining text would be self-reliance to some degree, although they're Republican elements in there uh -huh. liberalism comes into being with you know the rise of market capitalism the spread of market capitalism there's a, there's the morton horowitz's book about the changing nature of american law in this period to accommodate um the kinds of contracts and so on that needed to be signed and so on but to make capitalism possible had to overcome all kinds of like local affiliations local networks things had to be abstracted things had to be so you get this notion of a dis, an unencumbered citizen who can be anybody, and the only thing they have is rights. So the idea of a citizen is just like a complete neutrality, but they ha they have their rights-bearing neutrality. Okay. Mm -hmm. So these two ideas, liberalism is rising and it becomes dominant, but through the middle of the 19th century, they're kind of still going like this, and you get an interesting mix. So yeah. this is the this is the world into which Douglas stepped mm -hmm. and being super quick, you know, he, he, he read widely and he listened carefully and he started to see this and he began to see that, you know, this mix, it, 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 when I want to construct my arguments for, you know, why slavery should be abolished and why anti-black racism is wrong, this mix is not doing the work that I need to have done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and, you know, uh, in a way, you know, you, you, if, if at, you could say, well, 
he actually want, he takes a bit of the republicanism and holds on to that in the face of this movement toward liberalism mm -hmm. okay or he takes so that's sort of robert gooding williams although he's not making it as a historical argument he's got see he, he's emphasizing and melvin rogers does the same emphasizes the african-american latching on to the republicanist strand uh-huh then then others say no no it's it's john locke it's a theory of freedom whenever you see freedom freedom is not a republican it's the republic that's free not not the citizens in a republic yeah. who are free yeah so whenever the freedom is invoked that's a more liberal idea and so you you could you could kind of try to say douglas is like sitting there picking and choosing but of course he wasn't in there. He was always in action. He was always developing thought himself. And the path that he wound up taking is one that, as I say, is like based on this very robust um, understanding of what it is to be human. And it's one in which all humans are bound together in what he calls an inextricable network of human brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And in which my being a human is predicated on my knowing that you are human also in, knowing that when you see me, you see a human being, and we have no choice about this whatsoever. And when we disavow it, it takes a toll because we're, uh -huh. we're disavowing our very nature when we disavow. So all of his ideas are come out of the sense of the, the relationality of human beingness in the world. And uh, you're, you're not going to find that in either republicanism or liberalism I see. or or even a careful selection from those it's uh it starts from a very different place from the, the, this mm -hmm. the uh, yeah yeah no that's that's fantastic i mean it, it leads really nicely into my next question maybe sort of answers it but just to um to ask sort of from a different angle right the sort of liberalism republic republic republicanism um, that sort of split as an organizing principle and, you know, the way you, yeah. you articulate Douglas navigating that, um, I think is really interesting. And then I think just in terms of African-American political traditions, right. And, and sort of political theory or sensibility debates, so much of that is dominated by, um, uh, so much of that is dominated by the distinction between a conflict between Du Bois and Washington, right? The sort right. of emphasis on civil rights, education, intellectual life in Du Bois, and you know the the development of a of a sort of racial ethnic specific economy, right? And schooling and and, and you know the whole um, the what you know sort of vocational turn of of Washington's work. And what's interesting to me is, is first of all, that I, I think that frames so much of, of how we think about the origins of, of African-American thought, especially in the political sphere. But of course, there are all these other figures, you know, David Walker, you know, Anna Julia Cooper and so forth. But Frederick Douglass, since this is this book, since we're talking with you, you know, where do you see Douglass sort of intervening in this to disrupt this, this split or, or whether it's charting a third path or finding, you know, an entirely different position. Because I think that one of the, and I don't think, one of the things I really loved about the book was how it made me recenter my own sensibilities around African-American political traditions uh, and debates and to sort of relocate it in Douglas and Douglas asking these questions that then, 
make the Du Bois Washington debate look less like a foundation and more like a variation. But I want to ask you sort of how you you know think about Douglas's political philosophy in relationship to these disputes that have defined so much of and continue to define so much of our debates about you know where does uh is black emancipation lie well i'm i'm partly going to i'm going to dodge your question in two ways a, a little bit so so one is um um uh, and, and, and if you if you have a question for me about Afro-pessimism, Black pessimism, I, I, I would dodge it in the same way. So, so one, <laughs> it's to say that that as a white scholar, okay, I, I'm, I'm not confident that I have standing mm-hmm. to speak to these questions. There's, there's a degree to which the, the like the Washington, but the Delaney Douglas debate, let's say, or the, the you know the Washington Du Bois debate, or you know the, the black pessimists, and then whoever would not be that debate. These are these are lively debates. You know, uh, I'm gonna say you know largely by uh, black Americans speaking to other black Americans about you know what is the nature of our condition, what what is the the the, the best. Uh, uh, and how do we define the best? Is it is it preservation of our sanity? Is it what is it? You know, uh, um, and um, you know, I might have opinions on that question, and if I, but I, I I'm reluctant to voice them because I I I don't I just don't feel confident that I belong in that conversation mm-hmm. as a white scholar. Um, if, if an African American were to ask me, or if someone asked me, well, what do you think about white racism? You're white. Do you think that it's here forever, or do you think that it will diminish over time? Okay, I might be a little bit more comfortable answering that. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Than mm-hmm. So uh, my second way of dodging your question, if it is dodging it, is to say that um, all, all such questions um, are both, you know, kind of, um, for Douglas, you could... It, they only were interesting if they were a practical question. You know, he in one of the speeches he derived something as like bare theory. Mm-hmm. Love that phrase. It's bare theory. So it's because, and I wish I had his exact words here, but it's something like because it, it you know, it, it 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 doesn't it doesn't shed light upon the pathway of our duty. Okay, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, so. Um, for Douglas, that's what thinking had to do. It had to, it, it had to give guidance toward in toward action. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incomplete if it didn't show the path into action, um, and recommend a course of action. So, um, so for me, the debate between two positions um, is 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 not really interesting. Uh, uh, unless it's rephrased as, well, which of these two do you think uh, lays out more clearly the, 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 the path in, toward action, you know, that we must mm-hmm. take? And um, as speaking as a, as a white scholar, I would say, um, well, um, the, the, the belief that white racism is not here to stay, Okay, mm-hmm. 
a priori, as an a priori, as, as an a priori position, this 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 closes down paths to action for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, uh, as a white scholar. So uh, as a white scholar, I'm very committed to the belief that uh, that that white racism can be ameliorated and 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 uh, its force reduced through mm-hmm. action. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another reason why my scholarship, both in my book before this one and this one. Is is very much addressed to the way black thought can shed light on the 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 challenges of democratic citizenship for both black Americans and white Americans, uh, mm-hmm. because um, you know, and as a teacher, I became very frustrated with the the standard narrative because I teach where I am almost all white students, and uh, you know, the, they they were they're getting um, this idea of heroic resistance to, to oppression, which mm-hmm. is true, it's great. But, but, but African-American culture has so much more to offer, you know, uh, than a, a modeling heroic resistance to oppression. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's like, um, we're, all, we're still in that kind of American dilemma, Gunnar Myrdal trap when we start seeing African-American culture as like reactive only. And um, and then we're, now we're going back to like the re, you know the, what are the resources that get developed within these conditions that are in some way are not reducible to the thinking as just being reactive to those conditions, but yeah. as something else. So so those are my answers to your questions. You mm-hmm. know, in a way, uh, uh, that's um, not dodging okay. the question at all. I think it's actually quite okay. a thoughtful okay. a thoughtful right. notion of of you know, what the place of, of this work is, you yeah. know, and, uh-huh. you know, because I, I think, you know, you know, I, I forget the exact phrase this is a wonderful phrase. I, I assume it was Douglas's. If it was yours, it was a nice channel of, of 19th century uh, rhetoric of, you know, shining light on our path. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Path that's of, right. path of duty. Yeah. Um, and so that, that, you know, what shines light on that path to duty? I think yeah. it's really interesting to think about, you know, the two of us as, as white scholars working on black materials that are of real urgency, right? It's not just, you know, um, not just speculation, but also, you know, so, has something to do with paths of duty and, and emancipation. Is this the question of, you know, let's, you know, let's articulate this light as best yeah. we can as readers. And what that light means is another kind of question. Um, but it does strike me then also just hearing you talk about, you know, it is also a way of asking the question to Du Bois and Washington, because I think the way Du Bois and Washington debate often gets cast, if not almost exclusively gets cast, is sort of economics or intellectual life, right? And and sort of how can you throw bombs at one or the other? But I think this question of like, you know, what lights a path of duty and which lights, you know, are these two paths, right? Or is there something that lights up this path in a in a more vibrant way or makes more visible is a really interesting way to just recast any dispute and debate. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I, that's the, the question of dignity, I think, just already builds that in. It's this, it's a voracious concept that uh, is also um, adaptive to the different places you set it, right? You could set it in Washington's work, you can set it in Du Bois's work, you can set it in Cooper's work and so forth and watch it play. Yeah. Um, 
you know, there's an interesting book uh, coming out by Vincent Lloyd called B Black Dignity. And he, he might be a, 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 he would, in fact, be a, a wonderful interlocutor on your podcast. Yeah. Um, it's it's going to be coming out, uh, I think, in a month or so. But, but I have a question for you, if I may, John, sure. about, which is, you know, um, um, although you know, the word dignity is, 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 is getting more uptake generally in the culture and to some a little bit of degree in, in academic culture than it was when I started writing this book, um, you know, it's still a word that most of my peers and colleagues if anything, you know, they, 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 they're kind of might be just negatively neutral to the word. They, they, the word does not, um, and, and by any means, have an automatic resonance for them. And they, yeah. they need to be kind of talked into, like, uh, embracing this word as a resource for um, not partly as a, just a historical phenomenon, but also as a resource for our times. And... Um, I'm wondering why that is. And so that's what I'm asking you. If you think that my characterization is true, what what accounts for it, do you think? I don't know. It's funny you ask that. I, I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, because of your book. Even just when I saw the title, I was like, okay, dignity is, is something that has power. I mean, what it evokes for me, you know, is very much rooted in my my college age political, um, I don't want to call it awakening, but my political sort of bloom, which was with liberation theology, uh, the parish of the poor, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, um, mm -hmm. and obviously Gustavo Gutierrez's work. I went to a Jesuit college in case you can't tell. <laughs> um, this was before they kicked the liberation the theologians out of the um, church and out of education. But um, it was very much that kind of language. And what I, what I think that, you know, what, why it functions so well in that sort of Jesuitical context or that Catholic context is the dignity of the person is a real theological concept, right? That's underpinned by, you know, the grace of Christ and these sorts of sort of metaphysical questions. But uh, when you take it outside that, because that's, you know, when we talk to our colleagues and we say dignity, I, I don't think it resonates, you know, unless you're talking with religious studies people. But I think outside of that context, it starts to sound and, you know, I don't know, maybe this is a kind of shitty way to, to, to critique our, war, our, our profession, but I think it's too vernacular. Mm. It's like people mm -hmm. talk about my dignity and I think it sounds too plain. Mm -hmm. And that part of what we're really wedded to in, in academia are terms that don't have vernacular traffic. And so then they can, they're a little bit uh, less resistant to our shaping and definition. But my own interest as a scholar, and, and again, that's part of what I really liked about your book is the way vernacular, whether it's culture or speech or values, right, become material for our own thinking, right? Not that we correct it, mm -hmm. but that we, we help articulate its shape. Because I think that if you say dignity in the world, it actually makes people stop. If you mm -hmm. say, I felt like that was a violation of my dignity. I think like if I say that sort of at the grocery store, right, people are like, whoa, you've really elevated the stakes. It's interesting yeah. that in an academic context, I think it's like, like you say, sort of violently neutral. It's like, uh, that's not really sort of sophisticated enough. Right. Okay. 
but I think it's power, it's vernacular power, and it's theological power, certainly in the Catholic tradition. It's theological and vernacular power, for me, is the reason why it has to be taken seriously philosophically. And, and you know, this does it through Douglas, who took it seriously. Yeah. You know, um, I was, uh, the disabilities rights movement, um, I don't know if you've read much of the in the primary source material of that. There are some great oral histories of the of the disabilities rights movement that are must read books, in my opinion. Speaking of like vernacular, you know, and and that and and now there's you know it's just a very good thing. I think there's a turn in political theory to looking at the discourse, the speech, the the plain words of activists, and seeing these as resources of, of reflection that can then be um, elaborated upon uh, in using, you know, think in a kind of more theoretical or philosophical mm -hmm. way. So, um, but I think one of the really interesting and, uh, and challenging aspects of, of dignity um, is this, uh, you know, you, one could say that the long civil rights movement, the, the freedom struggle, black freedom struggle, was was at least as much a dignity struggle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Martin Luther King does use the word dignity now and then. This is not surprising, given his theological. Mm -hmm. But he uh, he he doesn't lead with dignity. So this is the thing, you know, uh, it's, it's a little bit like that Mark Twain joke. I wouldn't belong to any club that would have me as its member, as a member. You know, it's one of these catch-22s. For me to say to you, my, you know, my, my dignity, dignity is wounded. My dignity is injured, okay, is more difficult for me to say than for me to say, you are curtailing my freedom or you're curtailing... Okay, it's a it's a deeper wound, and it acknowledges the degree to which my dignity is dependent, to some degree on on it's in your hands to some degree. Yes, yep. And um, and it and it and it seems to suggest a kind of a dignity deficit on my part to say this. Like you know, I should shouldn't I be robust and 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 not care about your. Mm -hmm. You may not see my dignity, but I, I've got dignity. I'm, I'm not worried about it. So well, that's where the wound part is important, right? The wound What's part that? is, I think that's where the word wound is so interesting because you say wound, you wounded my dignity. Well, wounds are like they harm your body. They make it not move the same. That's Sorry right. to interrupt so you, but, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. So it's just a very hard thing to say because in saying it, you seem to affirm that you have a dignity deficit. Mm-hmm. And this seems almost like a personal failing. Why am I not strong enough to to surmount your denial of my dignity? Okay, so I think it's a very hard thing for uh, a very hard word for claimants to rights and for for other others um, who uh, whose whose dignity has been uh, eroded, denied uh, uh, in, in many ways. Uh, question and challenge it's very hard for them to lead with that word yeah um 
because it, it just it, it's so profound and it, it comes so close to naming something and then also to, to acknowledging that one is speaking from a condition of relative weakness in a certain way. And uh, so I think um, that's a that's another reason for it. And there, you know, there are some great, uh, I'm happy to send you there. There are a couple of Douglas speeches where he, um, uh, he, he, he addresses like the, 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 the effects of anti-black racism on, on the black spirit, you know, on the black, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, self-regard uh, and, uh, you know, they're very powerful. They're very, very powerful speeches. So let me ask you in some ways yeah. you've, you've spoken, uh, I think already to this, um, you know, when you write a book, you have your big idea, uh, thing you want to demonstrate, but we all know, uh, you give a book to somebody and they take with it from it, uh, what they want. Right. Um, but at the same time, part of being a, a, a writer and being delivered in your presentation, um, is you want people to walk away from your book different, differently, right? That they don't walk the same. And I, I always say walk, not take away. Like how do, like basically what I want to ask you is, you know, how do you want readers to walk away from your book? Not take away, because I think take away is this possession and then you do with it what you want. But walk away, like really, you know, if we can sort of imagine like how we could affect the way people move in light of what we write. How do you want people to move and think and be differently after this book? Well, I dare I would kind of make a distinction between my white readers and, you know, certainly my African-American or black readers and, and, and readers of color. Mm-hmm. So for my white readers, uh, the, the main takeaway I, um, I would like them to get or, or a couple, you know, so, so one is that you know, democracy is a fundamentally collaborative and relational enterprise. Mm-hmm. It, it's not these individual windowless monads who each all have rights and they're bumping up against each other. And somehow out of the aggregate of all that, we, we get policy. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, democracy is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of um, character. It's a matter of relationality. It's all of those mm-hmm. things. Um, uh, and another is that a democracy, is, you are, you know, you 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 have a democracy. It's it's a it's a flawed democracy. It never was perfect. Um, it, it, it's a work, a perennial work in progress. Douglas believed that it was a, a, a never the work would never end, because power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. So you know, it's, you're never going to get your achieved democracy, and then put it on autopilot and have it take care of everything because power is there, you know, power is ready to like find a way to get its way. And Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. so democratic citizenship requires constant struggle and it requires constant vigilance and it's much more activist notion of citizenship than simply we are rights bearers or citizenship is a certain status, legal status conferred by the state, yeah. um, which is sort of how it's seen in academia when we talk about citizenship, That's rather than the citizen, rather than the citizen as a, a bundle of powers ready to be exerted on behalf. 
And so this notion of, of, of mutual mutuality, relationality of citizenship, which then um, and of, of, of struggle, um, it, it would seem to me to lead, you know, naturally to a notion that um, um, uh, we all have to work on behalf of everybody all the time. It's not like, uh, you know, that that that's what it is to be a democratic citizen. Yeah. And if you're white, you know, you, you can't be resting on your on any of your privileges or if you're wealthy, you can't be resting on those. Um, so um, for and then another takeaway, for, I think, for white readers, at least now I'm going down to like kind of my undergraduates, you know, and like <laughs> that level is like <clears throat> there's much more to Frederick Douglass than heroic resistance. There's much more to African-American culture than heroic resistance against enormous odds, okay? There is actually um, a whole bunch of stuff that was created with you in mind to listen to so your life would get better. And so that yeah. your prospects would be, you know, this is a, there's a, there's a, a yeah, it's it's not a hermetically sealed box where you, you learn about, this is the way black people think about black problems. It's about... Mm-hmm something much more, again, mutuality and, and, and so on and so forth. As far as my African-American readers and readers of color go, um, well, um, I hope that, um, I hope that, uh, you know, my, um, uh, you know, I, I don't really even know how to answer that question, honestly. Um, I think, I hope, that um you you know i hope i wrote that i hope i wrote the book with an, enough humility that that comes across mm-hmm. i hope that um I, I hope that i kept the focus always on this is what douglas thought and i'm not i'm not smuggling snug smuggling my own thinking in here mm-hmm. and you know you began your question was like we begin a book we have a great idea and then we can do it i did not begin this book with a great idea Okay. Okay. I had no idea. What I, I always, I always write to disappoint myself. Apparently, the big okay. idea, and I'm like, that I, wasn't quite is, it. I can genuinely <laughs> say that uh, the, with this book, I had no preconception of what I was going to find. Okay. All I knew is what I was going to. All I knew is I had an intuitive feeling that what had been written was inadequate, and mm-hmm. um, and that for me to find out what adequate would be, I would have to read much, much more Douglas than I had ever read. Uh huh. That was all. That was it. And so everything that came out has been influencing me rather than the other way around. So, yeah. you know, dignity has become an important word for me because it's important to others. Uh, well, yes, I was kind of disposed to think of the world in, in you know, relationally. Um, um, but, you know, Douglas certainly helped me develop my thinking about that mm-hmm. in, in relation to to politics and citizenship in a way I had never thought of before. So I just hope that, um, yeah, my, um, you know, that I, that I don't, that I, I just hope that there's not, uh, I hope my ego is not in that book. I know I've got one, like, you know, I've got a big one, but I just hope mm-hmm. it's like, there's not, not a big white ego in that book. It's kind of getting in the way for African-American readers. I said, I don't know. 
that's that's no small thing, actually. I <laughs> think, and and I think the book's hugely successful that way. By the way, I, I, I just think it's it's a book that uh, does right by Douglas's texts, and text okay. work is is enormously important when it has an interpretive frame like you have. It, it mm-hmm. recovers uh, or establishes a sense of Douglas's thought that there's so much work to be done whether it's creatively with it or rereading aspects of Douglas and his surrounds and so forth. So I think the, um, I think that, I think it's very, for what it's worth, I think it's very successful on both those accounts, but especially the devoid of ego, but you need enough ego to make bold claims. And the book definitely uh, has that so that it, so that a real version of Douglas does absolutely emerge. Mm-hmm. Let me turn that around to you. You know, I mean, we write books and we start, um, you know, one way and then we end another way. I mean, books change us as writers. So I'm also curious about you, like, how do you walk differently after this book? And I mean that both in terms of like how the book sort of changed your own thinking. You've said a little bit about, you know, the, you know, the, the, the way the question of dignity is merged in, in this, this very different way for you and very bold way, but also where does it lead you in terms of next works? And I, I hate asking that next works because it's enough to have a book, right? <laughs> this is like the academia workaholic thing of us. What's your next <clears throat> thing? And I don't really mean it that way. I just mean sort of where, what has that opened up for you as, as a writer and a thinker? Well, um, the uh, you know a long long time ago I, I i was just out of graduate school and uh, uh there was a, a african-american that in the department i was at who was a senior uh you know he and a well-known figure and uh, i and i i was a graduate student at the time and uh you know i kind of asked him about you know this whole question of a white person writing about African-American literature. Um, and he says, you know, as long as you do your homework, you have a right to, you have a right to write about anything you want to. And I kind of walked away from that kind of knowing that this was not uh, the most, this was not a, a helpful answer really. Um, Cause it's not, wasn't a matter of, do I have a right to write about it? You know, it was, I was asking something quite different than that. And, um, so the the whole question of my positionality and my relation to um, African American cultural production, you know, if to use a fancy word, black life, to use another, uh, um, has has always been on my mind. I kind of, as I said, I kind of got into African American literature deeply by by way of a an interest in democracy and in current. The, a current political problem that I think is still with us, uh, um, and then that led to like you know me to Douglas and uh, and uh, you know I honestly John um, I've, I've I think I've come to the end of my writing about African American everything mm-hmm. because I'm so I'm uh, I'm just so I'm more troubled than ever by my positionality. And oh, um, there are lots of the academy now is like you know abundantly blessed with having many many scholars of color with now, which uh, was not the case before. Um, and so I'm just I kind of feel I'm just t- taking up space honestly, even though I've been very welcome the African American scholars who 
who I've met have you know they've been extremely supportive and and uh, welcoming, um, but I just feel that um, yeah, I just I just kind of feel it's it it it's time for me to step aside and and find a, another place to be doing you know, there's abundant political work to be done in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's time for me to find another path, uh, uh, you know, both an activist path, which I do, which is strictly party politics, very mundane, mm-hmm. um, working for democratic candidates. But, um, but on the level of thinking and the like, I think I need to find another, um, another, another way now. Well, I think if this book is, is your, your sort of signature moment on this long-standing mm-hmm. work with African American literature, culture, and politics—it's a—it's absolutely a fa- fantastic way to to well, mark thank that. Thank you, John. I, I really appreciate that. I, you know, uh, I know you you um, you know given a lot of thought to all of these matters and are are very very deeply read in uh, uh, you know really a much wider. Uh, uh, a body of of, uh, of African diasporic uh, 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 literature and culture. So I, I really appreciate that. Well, I love the book. Um, like I said at the beginning, um, I really learned a lot from it, and I'm really grateful for that because, you know, why I got into this profession was not to make a bunch of money. It was not <laughs> to be famous. It was to um, to learn about ideas and. And I think anybody reading this book, uh, there's really just so much to learn. And I love this conversation. This was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, offering really thoughtful reflections on the nature of scholarship and of Douglas's work and its significance. Uh, I really, like I said, I really appreciate your time and uh, I'll be thinking about this conversation for a while. I'm glad it will circulate and get some ears on it and hopefully lots of eyes on this book. Well, thank you, John. You know, uh... It's a conversations are a collaborative enterprise, and uh, you know I, I really appreciated uh, our talk today as a conversation. Uh, I know I took up most of the airspace, but um, it's about I, your book, I man. Feel, I feel that's what it was called, what, what you're calling for, and yeah, I loved your, I loved you know the way we just made it into it felt like a very natural give and take of, of, of ideas and. Um, um, I love your podcast and uh, uh, again, appreciate so much you inviting me to join you. Well, I can't wait till I'm back in the valley and I will buy you a cocktail or a coffee depending on uh, your preference at uh, Amherst Coffee. Uh, it'll be uh, on me. That's uh, my rule. That's my rule. Anyone who comes back to the valley <laughs> gets treated, okay? But if I come down your way, that's, you can find me a drink when I get down there. You. I like that as a welcoming principle. All right. Well, take care. It was good to see you. Okay. You be well, John.